I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to the 135th episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I've got an extra special episode for you. Almost always, the historical events I talk about on here didn't have any personal effect on me. If they happen to be events that I was around for, and I remember them, it's just because I saw it on the news or read about it in newspapers. Today's event happened a couple of years before I was born, but it directly affected my family and many of the people that I grew up with as neighbors and friends. Although this week marks the 46th anniversary of this event, I know at least my parents can still vividly remember in great detail what went on that day. And I grew up hearing people talk about that day in June. Today's historical date is June 5th, 1976. And I'm taking a headline from the Spokane Daily Chronicle on that day. The headline says, 15,000 leaving homes as Teton Dam breaks. The Teton Dam was an earthen dam that was proposed in the early 1960s and then built during the early 1970s in eastern Idaho. But the dam wasn't an easy sell. After all, there were a lot of people who didn't like the idea or the impact it would have, but the project went forward anyway. There were a lot of problems with the project while it was being built, too, including huge fissures that popped up. But again, the project moved forward and the dam was completed in November of 1975. The reservoir slowly started to fill up, at the rate of about one foot a day. However, the winter of 75 to 76 brought a lot of snow to Idaho and the surrounding mountains, which meant there was a lot of water coming down the Teton River in the spring. So, in order to better control the flow, five months into the filling of the dam, the engineers of the dam requested that they be allowed to fill the dam at the rate of two feet a day. Then, a month later, they asked for permission to double that rate again to four feet a day. At this point, the dam was almost full, but on June 5, 1976, at about 7.30 a.m., workers noticed that the dam had sprung a leak. They weren't too worried yet and thought that everything would still be okay. Two hours later, at 9.30 a.m., 20 to 30 cubic feet of water was coming out per second, and it was obvious that part of the dam was starting to wash away. Bulldozers were quickly sent in to help plug up the hole. They pushed boulders down into the hole, hoping it would plug it up, but their efforts were in vain, and instead the eroding dam washed away their equipment and the operators had to be pulled to safety. At 11.15 a.m., the sheriff's office was notified that it was time to start evacuating all of the people who lived downstream from the Teton Dam. It was a Saturday. School had only recently gotten out for the summer, and people were just going about their day, running errands, enjoying their weekend, and then they received word that they needed to head for higher ground. Many people didn't think it would amount to too much water, but by noon, the dam had burst, and as much as two million cubic feet of muddy water rushed out every single second. And that's where my personal connection comes in. You see, my family including my parents and my sister 
and grandparents and many aunts and uncles and cousins all lived downstream from the dam. A wall of water, at one point 20 feet high, rushed down the river, wiping out towns all along its way. The wall of water hit Wilford and Newdell, Teton, Sugar City, Salem, Rexburg, and Hibbard. Some of the little towns were almost completely wiped out, and in the bigger towns, it was estimated that as much as 80% of the structures were damaged. People fled for higher ground, and luckily there's a hill in Rexburg, which is where many people went to wait out the flood. Rick's College was located on that hill, and they took in and fed thousands of people over the next few days. All those people watched from above as their homes and businesses were destroyed. My parents watched as their own home, along with many others, lifted up and floated away. A lumber yard was located upstream from the Rexburg area, and all of those logs came crashing into town along with the water, which created even more damage and destruction. Now, if you know one thing about Idaho, it's probably that the state is famous for its potatoes and other crops. My dad was a potato farmer. The Teton Dam flood washed away acres and acres and acres of precious topsoil in the area, and dead livestock was found all over town. Billions of dollars in property damage was done. And in a situation like this, you might expect a high loss of life. But somehow, miraculously, only 11 people lost their lives that day. Residents were overwhelmed, but donations and cars and buses filled with people came from other areas of the state, as well as neighboring states, to aid in the cleanup. And I know that their help was greatly appreciated. Now, I may not have been born until after the actual event, but I did grow up seeing possessions that were still covered in flood mud. And I grew up hearing story after story after story about June 5th, 1976, which means there's a lot that I could say about that day, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to post a link in the Additional History Facebook group to a video with footage of the event. It was made just a short time after the flood, and I've seen this exact video so many times I could probably quote most of it. Then, instead of dwelling on this tragedy, I'm going to open some more papers and see what else was being reported on that day in June. For my first additional history story of the day, we're going to travel to the state of Arizona. Buckle up, because this story is a bit shocking. And I was excited to tell the story because not only is it written about in newspapers, which, you know, is kind of the point of this podcast, but this story is about the newspaper where I'm taking the article from and one of its reporters. This headline, printed in big, bold letters on the front page of the Arizona Republic out of Phoenix, Arizona, says, Figure in attack on reporter surrenders. This story is about Don Bowles. He was a reporter that worked for the Arizona Republic. He was born in New Jersey in 1928, and he was raised there. Both his father and grandfather had worked for newspapers, and Don decided that's what he wanted to do too. So he went to Beloit College to get his degree, and while he was there, he was the editor of the school newspaper and even received a President's Award for the things that he did while he was there. Don went on to join the Army and served in an anti-aircraft unit during the Korean conflict. When he got out of the Army, 
he went to work for the Associated Press, starting out as a sports writer. Then, when Don was in his mid-30s, he took a position with the Arizona Republic as an investigative reporter. In that job, he was known for doing reports on government officials accepting favors and bribery and land fraud. He was especially known for the work he did on organized crime, and that included Al Capone's former crime group, the Chicago Outfit. So, now that you have a little background information, I'm going to tell you why Don was making headlines rather than writing them. On June 2nd, Don Bowles left a note on his typewriter at work, saying that he was going down to the Clarendon Hotel to meet up with a source. After that, he planned to go to a lunch meeting, and he said he'd be back in the office by 1.30 p.m. Workers at the Clarendon Hotel said that Don had come into the lobby and was waiting for a few minutes when a call came for him at the front desk. Don took the call, spoke with whoever was on the other line for a minute, and then left the hotel. Don's office believed the man he was supposed to have met there was John Harvey Adamson. It was believed that Don was meeting John because he claimed to have some sort of information about a land deal that involved Arizona politicians that were pretty high up, including a senator. Don and the senator were known to be pretty good friends at the time, so it was particularly of interest to him. Anyway, after the meeting, Don got back into his car, turned it on, and started to drive out of the parking lot. Suddenly, without any warning, a bomb inside his car exploded. The bomb had been placed underneath the driver's seat. It completely shattered Don's legs, and he was quickly at risk of bleeding to death. The blood loss affected some of Don's most vital organs, including his kidneys and lungs. In the article in the newspaper on June 5th, Don's doctor gave an update on his condition and said that there was hope he would survive. His doctor said, quote, Mr. Bull suffered rather massive injuries primarily to his muscular skeletal system. There was blood loss to the point of exsanguinations, which means bleeding to death. Prompt treatment at the scene and in the emergency room at St. Joseph's Hospital undoubtedly was life-saving. This massive stress was followed by extensive surgery involving removal of the right leg and repair of the badly injured left leg and arm. To date, we are having significant difficulties with both pulmonary and renal function. These difficulties arose primarily because of the serious bleeding problems and not because of primary injuries to the organs themselves. The bleeding difficulties now appear to be coming under control. In theory, at least, we should have an excellent chance of correcting these problems. A large team of expert physicians is involved in his care, and his progress to date has been essentially as predicted. Although he remains critically ill, and much remains to be done, I am hopeful now that he will survive. Wow, Don's injuries were horrible. The article went on to say that he'd already received 32 pints of blood. That is a lot. The police investigated Don's car and they announced that the bomb had been some sort of electrically detonated device that used commercial explosives, and it had been attached to the underside of the car by a magnet. The police knew that the magnet was a type that was sold in local hardware stores, and they wanted any employees who could remember selling one in recent days to come forward. On Friday, two days after the bomb exploded, police took John Harvey Adamson into custody. If you remember, he was the man that Don was supposed to have met up with at the hotel. Adamson knew that the police wanted to question him, so he went down to the station, 
along with his lawyer, and turned himself in. There was actually an old warrant out on him for defrauding an innkeeper, whatever that means, so he had to get his mugshot taken and his fingerprints taken, but he refused to say anything or answer any questions related to the Don Bowles case. He wouldn't even give his own name. So after a couple of hours, the police had to let him go because they didn't actually have enough evidence to hold him there. Fast forward a few days, and poor John developed an infection in the hospital that was quickly spreading through his body. The doctors ended up having to amputate one of his arms above the elbow. Doctors thought he'd be okay. But a few days after that, they had to amputate his only remaining leg because they couldn't get the infection to stop spreading. His blood pressure dropped, his temperature rose, and things were not looking good. Then, on June 13th, Don Bowles lost his battle and he passed away. The police knew that their case had just took a major change. They were now dealing with a murder case. This is the point where the story gets really complicated. And if I were to tell you everything that went down in the police investigation and the years of trials that happened after this, I would need to dedicate an entire podcast season to this story. So instead, I'm going to just give you the very, very basic details of the conclusion. The investigation determined that it was indeed John Harvey Adamson that placed the bomb under Don's car. Then another man, James Robison, detonated the bomb with a remote. Max Dunlap, who was a contractor in the Phoenix area, had hired the men to kill bulls. But why? Well, according to the officials, Max Dunlap ordered that Don Bowles be killed as a favor to his friend, Kemper Marley, who was a wealthy liquor salesman. You see, a few months before the bomb went off, Don had written an article that resulted in Kemper Marley not receiving a seat on the State Racing Commission. Confused yet? I'm not even naming everyone involved in this whole incident. Anyway, John Harvey Adamson eventually admitted to planning the bomb on Don's car, and he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder at his trial in 1977. He agreed to cooperate and testify against the others, if he was only given a 20-year sentence. Well, Max Dunlap and James Robison went to trial in 1978, and they were convicted. But then their convictions were thrown out on a technicality. Suddenly, John Harvey Adamson found himself as the only one sitting in prison over the incident. But he refused to testify against the men a second time. So, he was then charged with first-degree murder, found guilty, and sentenced to death. But wait, we're not done yet. John Harvey Adamson's death sentence ended up being overturned when he appealed twice, and the case went to the Supreme Court. Then, in 1990, Adamson did agree to testify against Dunlap and Robison again. Dunlap was convicted of first-degree murder and ended up dying in prison in 2009. Robison was actually acquitted during his second trial, but he ended up going to prison anyway for trying to solicit someone to kill John Harvey Adamson. He got out of prison in 1998 and then died in 2013. Adamson ended up serving about 20 years in prison and was released in 1996. But since there had been people trying to kill him, he was afraid for his life. So after he testified against the others, he immediately entered the Federal Witness Protection Program. He died in 2002. Kemper Marley, 
the man who supposedly ordered the kill in the first place never went to trial. But he did die in 1990, so maybe something would have happened if he'd lived. So, that is the much watered-down version of the murder of Don Bowles. Since his death, there have been many things named after him, and decades after his death, he is still remembered in Arizona. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm going to tell you a story that had been ongoing for a long time in 1976. It was a bit controversial, and everyone had their own opinion of how it should turn out. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of you listening today remember this case because it was such a big deal. I'm taking this article from the front page of the Courier News out of Bridgewater, New Jersey. The headline says, Quinlan's Won't Profit from Article. The headline isn't very catchy, but it didn't need to be because everybody by that point knew who the Quinlan's were. The Quinlans were an average middle-class family living in New Jersey. 22 years before the Teton Dam broke, the Quinlan family, just consisting of Joseph and Julia at the time, really wanted a baby. But Julia hadn't been able to carry one to full term. The couple decided to adopt, and in 1954, they adopted a sweet baby girl from Pennsylvania. After that, they were able to have a biological daughter and son, too. They named their adopted daughter Karen Ann. Karen was a smart child who learned to walk at a very young age. She loved sports. She could sing and play the piano by ear. And according to her mother, Julia, she was full of life and had contagious laughter. Then, suddenly and out of the blue, tragedy struck the Quinlan family. It was 1975, and Karen was in her early 20s. She had gone out with friends just having a good time, and then suddenly she collapsed. When Karen's friends saw that she was down and not conscious, they quickly administered CPR to her and did everything they could think of to save her life. They got her to the hospital as quickly as they could, but Karen was comatose, and the doctors couldn't get her to come out of the coma. They put Karen on life support, including a ventilator, and tried to look for reasons for her sudden coma. But they couldn't find anything. There was absolutely no clue as to what had suddenly happened to the young, vivacious Karen Quinlan, and the doctors were baffled. Sadly, instead of getting better, Karen's condition just got worse and worse and worse. Her body was deteriorating and shutting down. The doctors moved her to a different hospital, but it didn't do any good, and the doctors at the new hospital said that Karen was in a, quote, persistent vegetative state from which she could not recover. The Quinlan family was devastated, and Julia said she would spend hours and hours crying and pouring her heart out to her church leaders. The Quinlans were devout Catholics. Karen's father, Joe, would visit Karen in the hospital as many as four times a day. He was not giving up hope. But for Karen's mother and younger siblings, they felt that the Karen they knew and loved was gone. And according to the doctors, nothing they did or said would bring her back. Eventually, Joe came to realize what the rest of the family had realized too. And they sat down together and had a long talk. They talked about Karen before the coma and what she would have wanted to happen if she knew she was going to end up in the situation she was in. 
they decided that she wouldn't have wanted to be kept alive by machines. As a family, they made the heartbreaking decision to remove her from the ventilator that was keeping her alive. Except it wasn't that easy. The Quinlans told the hospital how they felt and what they wanted to happen, and the hospital said, Nope. The hospital and doctors were threatened with prosecution if they took Karen off the ventilator. They said it was the same thing as committing homicide. The Quinlans argued that the ventilator represented extraordinary measures to keep their daughter alive, and that it actually caused her a lot of pain. Even though she wasn't conscious, sometimes she would violently thrash around in her hospital bed. Finally, in September of 1975, the Quinlans filed a lawsuit. They claimed that their right as parents to make a decision regarding the life of their daughter should have precedence over the state's desire to keep them alive. The court had already assigned a guardian to Karen, and they argued, again, that taking her off the machines would be homicide. In November, the Quinlans lost their lawsuit. The media loved Karen's story. They wrote about it and talked about it and argued all the sides. The case brought up questions on ethics and theology and civil rights and guardianship. Everyone knew about the case and everyone had an opinion. The newspapers would print drawings of Karen in the newspaper depicting her as Sleeping Beauty. And, going against the Quinlan's request for privacy, many reporters would try everything they could think of to gain access to Karen's hospital room. One reporter went so far as to dress up as a nun to sneak into the hospital. After losing their lawsuit, the Quinlan's appealed, and the case ended up being argued in the New Jersey Supreme Court. That time, the Quinlan's won and they were given the right to make the decisions that they wanted to in their daughter's medical case. The case would go on to be an example for many more cases, and it led to the requirements that all hospitals, nursing homes, and hospices have ethics committees. It was Karen's case that led to the creation of living wills, where people could declare what they wanted to happen if they ever ended up in a situation that was similar to Karen's, and a decision would need to be made on their behalf. Many people were glad that they could legally die with dignity. So, in May of 1976, more than a year after Karen lapsed into a coma, and just a few weeks before the Teton Dam broke, Karen Ann Quinlan was removed from the machines that were keeping her alive. Usually when that happens, it's a very short time before the patient dies. But that didn't happen with Karen. Somehow, miraculously, Karen started breathing on her own. Hours turned into days, and the media was going crazy with this story. There were thousands of articles, including many opinion pieces, written about her again. Some had headlines saying that she was expected to die at any moment. But again, she didn't. Now, one thing that her parents had never asked for was to have Karen's feeding tube removed. They just wanted her to be able to die naturally, and that meant breathing on her own, not starving her. Despite all of the media watching, waiting for Karen to die, she continued to defy all the odds. She didn't die in May of 76, and she didn't die in June of 76, or July, or August. She didn't die at all in 76, or 77, or 78. Karen was moved from the hospital to a nursing home, and even though she never came out of her coma, 
She went on to live for nine more years after she was removed from the ventilator. Then, on June 11, 1985, Karen died from respiratory failure due to complications of pneumonia. The article from June 5, 1976, the same day the Teton Dam burst, was explaining that the Quinlan family had sold the rights to Karen's story to the Ladies' Home Journal magazine. And although the exact amount wasn't officially disclosed, it was believed to be around $30,000. The Quinlan family wasn't going to see any of that money, though. All of it would be turned over to the Roman Catholic bishop in Patterson, New Jersey, for some sort of healthcare project with his diocese. The Quinlan family also released two different books about their story, one in 1977 and another one in 2005. The Quinlan family also started a hospice organization that is still around today called Karen Ann Quinlan Hospice. As far as I know, Julia's mother, now in her 90s, is still alive and involved with the organization. Karen's father, Joe, passed away from cancer back in 1996. For my last additional history story of the day, I'm going to warn you that it's very sad and maddening, and it involves a child, just in case you want to skip it. I'm taking a headline from the Herald out of Jasper, Indiana, and the headline says, Autopsy Shows Girl Was Beaten to Death. This story is even sadder than the headline makes it sound when you find out that the girl who was beaten to death was just three years old. On June 3rd, two days before the article was printed, three-year-old Kelly Renee Cavanaugh was found outside her home in Lafayette, Indiana. She was next to the family's swing set, and she was unconscious. She was taken to the hospital, but she died in the emergency room. The article published the results of the autopsy that had been performed on little Kelly. According to the medical examiner, Kelly died after she choked on her own vomit after throwing up from a severe blow to her abdomen by a blunt object, most likely something shaped like a fist. The autopsy also showed that poor Kelly had a skull fracture, and there were other signs on her body that she had been abused. Now, this story is awful, and I don't particularly enjoy sharing stories of child abuse, even though I see them all the time in the newspapers, and I do occasionally share them. But this story was different. Just like in the story about Karen Quinlan, this case brought up questions about laws and the responsibilities of medical practitioners and other people in positions of authority. You see, hospitals are, and were, required to immediately report cases that they suspected as being child abuse. But when Kelly died, the police didn't find out about it for five hours. And they didn't find out about it because the hospital called them but rather because a newspaper reporter got a tip about what was happening and called the police. Failure to report an incident of child abuse was a misdemeanor and could carry a $100 fine or a prison sentence up to 30 days behind bars. In the case of Kelly, multiple doctors and hospitals in the area received letters from the county prosecutor afterward telling them that what they had done was a crime. The police were considering making arrests over the failure to report the abuse. According to the County Welfare Department, one of the biggest problems they had was the failure of doctors to report cases to them when they suspected child abuse, and the failure of citizens to say something. Oftentimes, neighbors or others would see things, 
but they would look the other way rather than calling the police to look into it. A Lafayette police detective said, Child abuse is one of those things that everybody gets bent out of shape about, but nobody comes forward. People have to do their part to put an end to things like this. So, who was responsible for Kelly's death? Well, at the time Kelly died, her mother's boyfriend was suspected since Kelly had been in his care when she passed, but he hadn't yet been charged with anything. It took two months for William P. O'Connor, 26 years old, to be indicted on second-degree murder charges. His bell was set at just $10,000, and he was easily able to post it. When he finally went to trial in the middle of 1977, William's name started to be reported as James, so I'm not sure which it really was. Either way, he was convicted of the homicide of Kelly Kavanaugh and sentenced to spend 2 to 21 years in prison. But his lawyers immediately appealed the verdict, and he was allowed to remain out of prison. His lawyers claimed that there were things that shouldn't have been allowed in the case, like a witness who said they'd personally seen O'Connor hit Kelly in the past. The lawyers claimed that that had been just ordinary discipline, and the witness shouldn't have been allowed to testify. Hopefully these days, hitting a child wouldn't in any way be considered everyday normal discipline. The lawyers also didn't like that the prosecutors showed autopsy photos of the trial, and they thought that the photos influenced the jury. Um, little Kelly was beaten to death. Why wouldn't they show the evidence at the trial? I looked forward in newspapers for quite a while, but I could never find a good conclusion to this story. I really hope that Kelly got the justice she deserved and that O'Connor, whatever his first name was, went to prison for a very long time. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Bidford Sockle Journal out of Bidford, Maine. It's an ad for a Texas instrument calculator. I know when I was in high school, the fancy calculators we needed for class cost in the $100 range, and they could do amazing things. Nowadays, anybody can get the same functions on their cell phones for free. But back in 1976, people didn't have either of those options. This Texas instrument calculator on ad cost $14.70 on sale the equivalent of about $70 today. So what could this fancy calculator do? Not much. It was a basic calculator, the same kind you can buy at a dollar store today. And the calculator from 1976 didn't even come with a battery. A 9-volt battery needed to be purchased separately. Friends, thanks for joining me for this special episode today. I doubt a lot of people remember the Teton Dam breaking if they didn't live near Idaho when it happened. After all, we see disaster in other parts of the country all the time, from things like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods, and after a while, all of the horror starts to blend together. Now, if you are listening to this additional history episode on the day it releases, you'll know that today is Memorial Day. Last summer, I took a few months off to spend more time with my family, and because I had a lot of vacations planned. This summer is setting up to be just as busy. so. I'm sorry, but I'm going to take another break from additional history headlines you probably missed. I will be back on September 1st, because that's an easy date to remember. Since that day is a Thursday, I'll kick off Season 3 with a fun mini-episode. I hope you all have a wonderful summer, 
And if you want to reach out to me during the break, do so by emailing me at additionalhistory at gmail.com. Talk to you later.